Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Ready? Yep. Let's go. Let's laugh. We are imperfect after all. Okay. (laughs) Hello and welcome to the Imperfect Us podcast. I'm Leanne Camilleri. And I'm Lisa Downs. As co-hosts of the Imperfect Us podcast, we will share relatable stories that celebrate that we are perfectly imperfect humans leading perfectly imperfect lives. We will be sharing these stories through open and honest conversations with our extraordinary guests. And together we'll discover practical and evidence-based strategies that will enable us to navigate the constant challenges and changes of everyday life. We are thrilled to share these conversations as we draw on the science of wellbeing and positive psychology and we uncover the barriers that might hold us back from being our authentic selves and turn them into opportunities so that we can show up more consistently doing what we really aspire to do and who we want to be. We would like to acknowledge the Wadarung and Ghana people who are the traditional custodians of the beautiful lands on which this podcast is being recorded. We pay our respects to the Elders past, present and emerging and extend this respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples from other communities who are here with us today. So let's get started. Yay. And recording. It's a privilege to welcome today's guest, Dr. Susie Green. Susie is a clinical and coaching psychologist and founder and CEO of the Positivity Institute a positively deviant organisation dedicated to the research and application of the science of optimal human functioning in organisations and schools. Susie leads in the complementary fields of coaching psychology and positive psychology, having conducted a world-first study on evidence-based coaching as an applied positive psychology. Having published over 20 academic chapters and peer-reviewed journal articles, Susie is also the co-editor of Positive Psychology Coaching in Practice, Positive Psychology Coaching in the Workplace, and The Positivity Prescription. Susie is an honorary visiting professor at the University of East London and holds honorary academic positions at the Centre for Wellbeing Science at the University of Melbourne, the Black Dog Institute, and is an affiliate of the Institute for Wellbeing at Cambridge University. With a strong media profile on television, radio, and in print, Susie is also a member of the Scientific Advisory Board for Coach Hub, a leading global coaching technology platform, and is an official ambassador for the Starlight Children's Foundation. So let's get started. Thanks so much for joining us today, Susie. We are so grateful to have you with us. Mm. What I would like to ask firstly is um, we'd love to hear about what led you to the wonderful work that you do. Yeah, I think it's probably due to the imposter phenomena that have led me to the wonderful work that I do. So thank you so much for having me here today, Leanne and Lisa, and congratulations on your podcast first. Thank you. I think it's so uh, relevant and so badly needed and I think we'll dig into some of the reasons from my perspective why that's so but um, what's led me to do the work that I do I actually left school when I was 16 so um, no one in my family had gone to uni there was no expectation of that to occur at the time Um, I actually went to a selective high school which was a huge surprise when I remember they called out my name in primary school and most of my friends went to 
went to the non-selective school. So I was really disappointed about that. And then I thought, well, <laughs> why am I? I didn't think I was, you know, smart or intelligent. And then they, they've actually done research on this now. I think it's called Big, Big Fish Little Pond Syndrome. So yeah. when you put students into a selective environment. So I was surrounded by really, really smart kids, and which just confirmed my belief that I wasn't smart. So in the end, I left in year 10. Um, I just wanted to get out of school by, by that point. And uh, then I went back to uni when I was about 24. Um, and that was thanks to my partner at the time who did become my husband. We're divorced now. We have, we have two wonderful children. But I do have him to thank in many ways because he was the one that encouraged me um, to consider going back to university or going to university mm. and um, and really, you know, has put me on this incredible path, which I feel incredibly, you know, privileged to have been on. So, uh, but as you can imagine, with that sort of backstory, I've spent many, many years battling the uh, the imposter phenomena. So I've got I've got personal experience as well as academic ex- experience to talk to. <laughs> you know, well, you can feel very comfortable with us. <laughs> and in actual fact, Susie, um, we were talking about it just before you um, jumped in today. Leanne and I both share the same stories as you. So I left when I was in year 10 as well. And Leanne did the same. She left school when she was 14. But yeah. the, the journeys that we've had on the way have really shaped who we are to this day. Exactly. And even though we had a whole lot of those, you know, imposter thoughts, I didn't critic and, you know, why would you be doing that? You didn't even get to do that. We put ourselves through school put ourselves through uh, bachelor degrees, a master's. You can't get through that without having that sense of knowing that you can grow and develop. Um, So we share that with you. So that's such a great story. And especially coming from you who, you know, we um, rate you very highly up here. We probably have imposter thoughts about you. (laughs) But, you know, there is hope um, and pathways for learning and growing and continuing that. So it's um, a very, very good story. thought to start to start with I think which is great it is wonderful and it's great to share that story I think for many years I didn't and it's actually only fairly recently that I've been sharing more that I have struggled with anxiety most of my life which most Mm. people go no really (laughs) yes really but I didn't even really and it's so bizarre as a clinician like Mm. I didn't really even diagnose it in myself um which is really strange, but it's only now with, with time that I look back and I think, oh, my goodness. And now it, it just seems to have left the building. I don't know. I think it's brain maturation, you know, just life experience and it's it's gone. So I'm just really Fantastic. happy to talk about it because, again, I've had lots of clients too over the years that have said, oh, I'm not a university person, you know. you know, And yeah. so these stories that, oh, I, I wouldn't, couldn't do that, you know. So it's, it's, I think it's important that we share those stories. Mm. Yeah. And isn't it interesting when you become more aware of it yourself, that you're much more aware of it in others and you realise that all of a sudden there's that common humanity that we everybody has the same thinking um, yeah. at different times. Hey, Susie, I'm just wondering whether you would be able to share, um, obviously, you know, leaving school is a one story, but have you got another story of an imposter thought that might have shown up for you or perhaps some clients? And what did you learn from that situation about yourself or or those other people? Yeah, I think one of the other great um, stories is when I moved from clinical psych, so my doctorate's in clinical psych, but I did my research on coaching, which um, yeah. was quite um, innovative at, the, at that point in time, um, as a, a coaching as a mental health prevention intervention. And so I moved 
as soon as I finished the doctorate into exec coaching. So I had a colleague that supported me in that. And I think that's something I want to just a side side angle here for a minute. I really want to reiterate this today. There's absolutely things you can do at an individual level. And I will talk a lot to that, but I think the more we recognize that it is the environments and the people around us that support us because mm-hmm. there's definitely been people like Dr. Travis Kemp was, um, uh, he was actually an examiner on my thesis at the time. And then when I finished the doctor and he said, will you come work with me? And he ran a very successful exec coaching company across Australia. And I said to him, oh, I've never done exec coaching. Like I've treated executives clinically, but I've never done exec coaching because, oh, you can do it. I'll, you know, I'll supervise you. And in the end, he supervised me on organizational psychology and I supervised him on clinical psych, which as we now know is extremely prevalent in the workplace. And, um, but when I first started seeing senior executives and I was really thrown in, Travis gave me like, partners at um, PwC, KPMG, the federal police, right? So I was really thrown in the deep end (laughs) and my thoughts or ants, we call them, the automatic negative thoughts were, you know, what do I know about an organisational, you know, challenges? I don't have the language around KPIs, you know, all the, the specific workplace language. And I did have Travis helping me, but what I came to realize fairly quickly was that most of the people coming weren't there around specific, I guess, performance. It was around performance, but it was more to do with, I guess, the psychological challenges or underpinnings, but also very much around their relationships with people. So I did have those ants, and I think that's another great realisation that you can have the ants, that they can come along for the ride, Um, but I was able to say, well, hang on a second, I do know about this, this and this, and I think I might come at this slightly different from another exec coach, but the way that I come at it, I think has got enormous value, which it turned out to be. Yeah. So, yes, I think that was a big challenge I had to do when I first moved into the workplace um, and, and, you know, now having been, worked in workplaces for nearly yeah, 15, 17 years. So you learn as well over time. Well, I think, you know, as we go along, uh, you know, talking to different people, different experts such as yourself, you know, one of the things that we find is that, is that um, you know, when we get those imposter thoughts, we get caught in what, what Lisa and I have termed a, an imposter storm, you know, like where, yes. we, where we just sort of get stuck in that. We don't see the possibility and, um, you know, we can forget the things that, you know, the strengths and, you know, foresight that we might have because we get caught in that I can't do that or I can't do exactly but but when you see that you know like being pushed for want of a better word I guess you know into something that that does feel uncomfortable but actually seeing hey I can do this what an amazing feeling that must must have you know felt for you to be able to accomplish that absolutely but I think again just I mean, both stories, me me going to university and the encouragement from my partner at the time, Mm. somebody seeing something in me that I couldn't Mm. see in myself and then same with Travis, really seeing, oh, my God, of course you can do that. You know, like I think that makes such a difference, doesn't it, when Mm, somebody is there supporting you and encouraging you to have a go at it. Yeah. I, for I, sometimes it's your first thought, a, a vision that you didn't that you didn't know that awareness there. By someone reflecting it back at you is like really, and then when you notice that, all of a sudden you might notice other things. Yeah, it's like that 
wonderful, uh, you know, reflected best self exercise. How how powerful is that when you do that and get all that feedback? Absolutely. Because, yeah, I mean, particularly in our culture, we, you know, we don't, we haven't historically done that. We wait till people die and then we say all the good (laughs) things about them, don't we? So, so yeah, but look, uh, we actually, we've used that exercise at our uh, leadership coaching development program at Accenture for four years. We're on to our fifth year now. And uh, when we first introduced it, uh, there was a lot of cynicism around it. And, you know, is this a bit too American? And anyway, no. in the end, to cut a very long story short, it, there was this amazing, powerful story of someone that had had a health scare and he just received his, um, you know, the stories from family and friends prior to, to getting mm. this diagnosis. And he then shared with the rest of the cohort going through the group just how powerful that was for him and how it helped him go through the, you know, the, the procedure that he had to go through. And so since then, like everyone's now convinced just how powerful that exercise is. And I think Absolutely. again, poster phenomena. I think it's a, it's wonderful to have those different perspectives, how other people see us given back to us, shone back to us. Mm, yeah. Absolutely. Um Susie, in your work, you talk about mental toughness, and uh, and we're we're very curious to learn more about this and 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 how it might help when we have those imposter thoughts. Yeah, well, look, I love the model, and it's a psychological construct called mental toughness. Um, it's been around for quite a while now. I mean, there was some earlier research on it that came out of particularly sports, and I think you you know. You, you don't go get through a game without someone making reference to somebody being <laughs> mentally tough. Um, but it also was quite prevalent and still is in the military. Uh, and I think, um, you know, the recognition uh, that people can be physically strong and fit, but it's actually the mental uh, side of it that that probably is the deciding factor for people that, you know, make it through you know, special forces training and uh, the Navy SEALs, for, for example. But um, when I came across it, what I really loved about it was, um, well, number one, uh, that it, I, I guess, first and foremost, that it could be developed. So um, now I, you know, a- along with uh, that, you know, recognition that I've got family history of anxiety, I, bravery was in my bottom five when I first did the VIA <laughs> character strengths. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Um, and so I then realised, uh, I was probably about 40-something in my early 40s, that I'd had enough of it and I really wanted to learn to be a bit braver and um, so I explicitly consciously worked on on that and that's when I came across the mental toughness model and the fellow that co-created it Peter Clough his name is he's a sports psychologist and so he was coming at it from a sports perspective and he was looking at the development interventions like visualization techniques mindset techniques um uh, attentional control techniques. So there's a whole range of these techniques, which as a clinical psych, I'd used extensively for people suffering, particularly with anxiety disorders or phobia. So I was really familiar with the mental toughness development interventions from a clinic, clinical perspective, but he was saying, but this is, this is what we use in for elite athletes. So I had this amazing aha that, right. So unless you've, you know, for, been in some ways very fortunate to have seen a psychologist for anxiety and have learned some of these techniques or if you're very fortunate to have had a great coach or a sports psychologist you would have learned these techniques but the majority of people in our community including children at school have never learned yeah. these basic 
skills of resilience um, and skills of well-being. We know resilience underpins well-being as well. So it's a core part of our approach. We have a model called RAW, which is resilience, achievement and well-being, and our whole approach from resilience, which, as you would know, is defined as a multidimensional construct. There's a lot of debate about what it is. Um, how to develop it. So mental toughness is a very discrete model that's made up of control, challenge, confidence, and commitment, the four Cs. And then each of those have two subscales. So it's a very easy model to teach resilience, to help people unpack what a big, hairy topic like resilience is. But as I said, more importantly, it's got some great in very user-friendly interventions to develop um, mental toughness, resilience, bravery, if you like. Mm-hmm. And these skills are so mm-hmm. important, you know, if it, it, you know, where we do experience self-doubt or, you know, uh, confidence um, yeah. challenges, uh, having this to draw on uh, helps us to, you know, helps to propel us forward. Absolutely. And I, I started skiing um, very late in life. Uh, when I turned 50 so I didn't get to go last year which was unfortunate because of the lockdown but um I started because I was quite anxious learning to ski um and I started to run the four c's through my head so for example control is made up of life control and emotional control so life control is I'm a master of my destiny not a victim of circumstance so I thought well this is your choice Susie you know you can it's up to you how you want to come at this Um, and got real clarity around why I wanted to do it I wanted to I guess learn a new skill I wanted to enjoy time with my family who can who can ski Um, emotional control has got a huge part to play when you're learning to ski to manage your anxiety particularly if it's a slippery no icy slope um the day that you're (laughs) your um, skiing confidence is made up of confidence in abilities and interpersonal confidence so that's another great way to think about well I'm building my abilities generally but my confidence um, in my abilities but also my interpersonal confidence in being able to speak up when I was having lessons to ask questions about uh, get feedback about my progress commitment is uh, the third c and that's a commitment um, to the goal or to my growth and my improvement and then challenge now this is where mental toughness differentiates slightly from resilience because if you think about resilience it's generally something happening to you and how you react or ideally respond whereas mental toughness the challenge component is about proactively searching out challenging opportunities rather than waiting for them to come to us so um so for me I was you know proactively wanting to learn to ski and be a better skier and I think this is such a relevant model for imposter phenomena um, Mm. when to help people understand again how uh, whatever the particular scenario is that they're dealing with, with around the imposter phenomena to help look at these four C's and where are the areas that they have strength, which is we, we always come at from a pos site perspective, but where might be the areas that they, they want to develop a little bit as well. And I guess it, well, uh, as, as you, um, as you grow with, you know, with those, the four C's, the ability to do it again and, and again, you know, just becomes stronger. And, 
I actually saw you flew, you got your pilot's license. At oh, no, point. I didn't. Was that before or after or during? I had one lesson. Less, <laughs> the truth out of the table, I had one lesson and oh. I did have a pilot sitting next to me, but I did for small parts of that flight fly that plane. <laughs> you <laughs> still like, did it though, Susie. I, I you know. You still did it. And I, and I was so scared. <laughs> I was having a little giggle when you were starting to talk about um, the mental toughness and before that you were talking about that you didn't have the bravery, but yet you were brave in every sense. So have you done your um, VIA character strengths lately? I'm curious to know where bravery might be now. I think it has moved up, but it's still not right up the top. And I think, you know, I'm not someone, if you're familiar with the strengths profile, which is another um, great strengths assessment, um, I'm not... I don't have adventure. Um, I don't have spotlight. Like, it, yeah. which people would go, really? You don't have spotlight? I've, I've, I've had, I've learned to enjoy that now, as particularly yeah. as my anxiety is reducing. But I'm not, um, not natural person that pushes myself out of my comfort zone, and that's yeah. why with the platform that I've been given, and I do feel like this is my calling. Which, and actually, part part of my, um, I guess reduction in anxiety is I had a great coaching session off the back of my strengths profile because bravery was in weakness in strengths profile as well. Mm -hmm. But I had mission and legacy and growth and optimism Uh, all up in realized strengths. And so when the person coached me around presenting, I had this major shift in my mindset around this is not about bravery presenting. This Mm -hmm. is actually about you doing what you absolutely know that you're meant to be doing while you're on the planet. And so that was a a big help in reducing my imposter (laughs) phenomena as well at that point. Such an important part of of that journey, isn't it? Because uh, how we see things definitely impacts how we experience them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that having the language of strengths has been so helpful to me, both Mm -hmm. the VIA, I also have um, Zest. So I've bring my, a lot of energy to whatever I do um, but I have love of learning and I have curiosity and I have creativity so they've all been really helpful whenever I've had challenges to face but I also find so now I have a handful of senior executive coaching clients only because I'm busy with many other things in in the business but nearly each one of those does have some aspect of uh, imposter phenomena and these are really very high performing high functioning individuals and I just find that the strengths profile in particular or the Gallup we use Gallup with Accenture um, uh, but I do find the strengths profile because it's got that the the weakness component and it's got the unrealized, unrealized strengths. It's so helpful. It gives people a language and it also helps, as you were saying, Lisa, to, to reframe and look at themselves differently through the lens of strengths. Yeah, absolutely. I think that was one of the, um, I've done the VIA for years and years, and but when I did the strength, well, we had to do um, the Gallup and the strength profiler in my map, but the strength profiler really unlocked a lot of, oh my goodness, that's why I have that, that, that. And that's why I don't love that, that, and that. But that strength actually is a really good constellation for this one. So for me, like you said, with presenting, I think even when we were starting this podcast, I was like, oh, goodness me, I'm not sure if I could do that. You know, but then I went, well, hang on a minute, but what is my purpose? And what do I really want to bring? And for me, it's that service to others. And, you know, whatever that looks like, 
So like your legacy, I think legacy is one of my high ones too. So they definitely can help you to understand who you are and who you also want to be, which I think is really, really exciting. Absolutely. Yeah. I think um, what's really exciting for us and why we really especially wanted to talk to you, we've got um, the Positivity Prescription Program of yours with your 6M model, and it is just phenomenal. But when we were reading it and looking through it and chatting about a whole lot of things, we were thinking about your Chapter 6 with mindset. So one of the um, key elements in in um, the 6M model. And we're just wondering, because obviously, you know, when we have those noisy clatters of that inner critic that's just wanting to just derail us we know that there are some things that we can use some strategies or tools and we just wondered whether you'd be able to share some of those with us today because there's lots of them in your program and highly recommend this book to everyone and the program too but have you got some sneaky peeks for us today yeah and I think you know again it was a an interesting realization for me when I was doing my clinical psych training so when I was doing it showing my age 20 years ago CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy was was pretty much it you know that was the most evidence-based research and um and I was really fortunate to have very very good training in CBT and what I discovered was when I came out of the master's I'd have clients come along that would say I've done CBT and it doesn't work Mm -hmm. and our lecturer who used to head up the clinical program at Westmead Hospital he said to us always dig dig down a bit deeper on that because you might find that the the therapist hasn't really got to the core of what's going on or hasn't approached it um, in the best the best possible way. So um, for me, when I learned CBT, I learned that in my early 20s uh, through my partner and then through doing my clinical training, it changed my life. It absolutely mm-hmm. changed my life when I realised, firstly, that I had these <laughs> this running commentary events, <laughs> the automatic negative thoughts, and then two, that I didn't have to buy into the stories and that I could think differently. So, I mean, as we know, it sounds really simple, doesn't it? Just change mm-hmm. your thinking. And, in fact, one of my best recommended books is Change Your Thinking by Dr. Sarah Edelman, who's a colleague of mine. And, and I say to Sarah, you know, if um if I had a dollar for every time I've recommended your book, I'd be very, very wealthy. <laughs> yes. woman. It's such a brilliant book. And it's great book um, for, uh, I guess, yeah, non-clinical uh, clients as well. Executives, I've recommended it too. So CBT, I still think is a fantastic foundational mindset uh techniques so learning about these unhelpful or at their worst irrational thoughts learning some questioning techniques learning some potential disputation techniques but I've been also been fortunate to sort of have grown up with ACT as it's come through uh, over the last 15 or so years as well I think I went to one of the very first ACT workshops when it came out in Australia, I like to stay on top of what's the next new thing. I love the next new thing. That's part of my curiosity and love of learning. And uh, so I then I was working quite a lot clinically. So I started to introduce some, um, I guess, more act-based approaches. And it, it really felt right for me and for my clients because I did see that there were a number of clients that found CBT very difficult and they'd get into fights with their aunts is how they would describe it with me. And so some of the, I guess, more gentler mindfulness based of being the awareness, oh, that's interesting, you know, not necessarily trying to get rid of it or dispute it. And I always use the the roomy uh, poem of inviting in the uninvited guests. So 
invite them in. They can take a seat on the bus, but they're not driving the bus. So I started implementing a lot more ACT and I still do today have a combination, I guess, of CBT and, and ACT-based approaches in my work. So yes, change your thinking. Um, and the other one, clearly Dr. Russ Harris's The Happiness Trap is my other big favourite mm -hmm. for ACT. But uh, there's lots of great online courses you can do. And it's not just for therapists or for coaches. Oh, and that is something to, to bear in mind. Um, when it comes to coaching, in most cases, it's not that people don't have the skills or the capability. It's their, it is their thinking and their mindset, hence why psychology is so crucial when it comes to coaching. Um, so if you don't have, a, I guess, a, a psych background, then learning techniques like CBT or ACT and many, many coaches jump on the, um, the NLP. Um, and to be honest, there is research underpinning um, aspects of NLP, but it hasn't been as rigorously uh, researched like CBT and ACT, for example. But this, as I said, there's certainly aspects of it that, that have been. Um, but yeah, often you'll find people jump on that as a quick change methodology, but I would recommend that you do much greater investment in some of the newer, particularly act-based, which which are cognitive in, in nature anyway. Um, but yeah, I, I love the some of the techniques in act um, people yeah. find helpful. And act um, acceptance commitment therapy. Uh, act is um, you know very powerful you know, from a, a mindfulness mindfulness perspective of yeah. you know. Um, I guess catching those thoughts, seeing that they're there, but not go, not holding their hand and going off with them, and and the better practice that we become with that, the the I guess the better our experience is with with life and and managing our thoughts. Yeah, and I think the the combination with the values, which for me this this is why ACT resonated with me so early because even pre-learning about ACT, we use values in coaching. So from my very first entry into coaching psychology at Sydney Uni back in 2001, we were introduced to values and then being the basis for helping people set goals. And then, so I've been using values, you know, for years, even before ACT really made them really prominent. And, but it, it, it's such a nice alignment is the values, um, learning to sit with the discomfort, the, un, you know, the unhelpful thoughts, but knowing that you're moving in a values congruent direction. So mm. I think there's a lot of power in it. Um, Susie, throughout our conversation, we've, you've mentioned ants, um, automatic negative thoughts. Could you just sort of summarise what, what um, you know, turning our ants into pets kind of <laughs> means? It's quite simplified, isn't it? And we, there's a lot more to it. If you've had ants that have been there for many years, then it's likely that you've got core beliefs that drive the ants and you've got or schemas is another way in, in clinical psych that we come at these under underpinning uh, I guess, um, yeah, core beliefs about who we are, about ourselves, others and the world. But the ants, we all have ants. Everybody has ants from time to time. If you're in pain, you'll have ants. If you're stressed, you'll have ants. So they're automatic. So they're quite insidious. Sometimes you don't even realise that you're having them. Um, they're negative, like they're, they're absolutely irrational at their worst, which is I, I used to say to many of my clients, we took you into a courtroom you'd be thrown out. What evidence have you got for this you know, thought? Um, and I still do see, and I think, you know, in ACT, there's less focus on this disputation, but I still see much benefit to disputing the really ridiculously irrational thoughts, particularly if you put them down on paper, because when they're in your head, you know, you believe them to be true. And But when they're down on paper and you can look at it and you go, 
that is so ridiculous. I can't believe that. <laughs> I was thinking that. And maybe that's part of that cognitive diffusion that happens in ACT as well. But I, I think I'm not just coming at this from an academic perspective. And I think this is what makes the difference because I've worked as a practitioner for 20 years and not just in my clinical work and my coaching, but in numerous hundreds and hundreds of workshops and I've just seen people have major ahas about the ants and you know what when you do you know they say you retain less than 10% from training days it's like 99% when it comes to ants you ask people what do you remember oh the ants everybody remembers the ants and it seems to resonate with them and this idea that thoughts are not necessarily facts so there's some really in terms of building well-being literacy um, and psychological literacy and capability I think they're a nice little entree into it. But uh, as we both know that for some people, and I've worked with people that have had long-standing core beliefs and schemas, which can take quite a bit of psychological work, mm. therapy, to actually you know, unpack or understand that and, I guess, develop new ways of, uh, of seeing ourselves and being in the world. Mm. Mm. We, we actually interviewed uh, Dr. Craig Hassad and he talked about the inner critic FM on all the time. And, 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 and you know, that can be, that could quite easily be ants, couldn't it? Like it's oh. just, <laughs> we then, could call it, inner, uh, you know, the inner ant FM maybe. Oh, it doesn't sound it. quite. That's it. And look, the kids love it. It's a good one for kids. Mm. And in schools, POSED we've worked with uh, at Loretto Kirribilli, I remember in kindy or oh, year one they had a wall with all these ribbons um, hung against the wall and the girls could write an ant on one side of the ribbon and then the other girls would help do a reframe to that ant mm. on on the other side mm. so I mean oh imagine learning some of this at kindy yes. <laughs> I didn't learn it till I was in my 20s so and some people don't learn it until much older so no, that's right I've been working with five and six year olds and our um, earlier students up to you too as well and so we've been talking a lot about ants and the pets yeah. um, and pets being the performance enhancing thoughts yeah. and changing their mindsets but there's and they're doing so well and they keep thinking oh this is the mindfulness practice of I used to call it the clouds that would come in and go they just let them go oh my god there's so many clouds today far out yeah. so we talked about well what happens when we see ants and we showed them a clip of ants going and scurrying along and helping <laughs> and uh, I said so how many ants do you guys have and they're like oh I've got lots in my brain and some would go I've only got a couple today or they're having discussions about about it so that they can understand each other um, and then we turn it into pets. Well, how can we change that into a really kind pet? And that's so they created their own little, you know, yeah. fluffy dog or cat or whatever, a lizard. I love it. And then start talking about, well, what would your pet say to you? If that was happening, is that true or not? And so forth. I so the more that. visual you can make it for people, it, you know, the more rewarding it is and the more action and improvement, I think, comes out of that. Yeah, it's so good for kids to learn these skills, isn't it? Yeah, and the acronyms are just so simple and sweet. Yeah. That, like you said, if these kids are continuing with that learning all the way across, then when they hit that teenage, you know, phase where things just get a bit messy, they've got things to hold on to and, you know, to understand how their brain is working and and where to next. Yeah, absolutely. Susie, besides your own fantastic work, is there a book or an app or TED Talk that, that you would recommend to our listeners today? There's, there's so many, but my, I have to say my favourite and he's my newfound friend at the moment too is um, Scott Barry Kaufman, uh, a.k.a. SBK. 
And uh, so, Scott, for those that don't know about Scott, um, Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, he was a PhD student of Marty Seligman. And um, I actually heard him present at a World Congress in Florida, Disney World. Um, and I think Chick Sent Me High was on at the same time. And so oh, wow. everybody everybody was at the Chick Sent Me High. And there was not many people at Scott's. But I, I love to go to these conferences and look for new, again, this is part of my curiosity and what's the new <laughs> stuff that's happening. And Scott was doing stuff. He's, he's done some incredible work on creativity and um, and giftedness, I think, was some of his early work. And But neuro neurodiversity more recently. Uh, but he has a brilliant uh, podcast called the psychology podcast mm. by Scott Barry Kaufman and he has the uh, most amazing guests on that podcast mm. um, some of them I'm um, just a, a bit of a warning some of them are quite academic so they're a, they're a bit technical like um, and that's okay for, for people that have I guess got a background and have started studied masters for example but um but yeah, it's he's really at the cutting edge, and he's really exploring areas that um, that haven't gone mainstream. I think too, uh, which again is is the stuff that I love. Mm-hmm. So I can highly recommend the psychology podcast and his book Transcend, which oh, he went yeah. back and he went back and reread all of Maslow's Abraham Maslow's books and journals, and then wrote this book um, and sort of built on some of Maslow's work mm-hmm. around which towards the end of Maslow's life he was talking about moving from self-actualization to self-transcendence. So Scott's work is very much about self-actualization and self-transcendence at the moment. And he's also interested in looking at how coaching, we can use coaching to, to help people with that, which is hence my, my new interactions with Scott. Yeah. Oh, and coaching is so important. I love it. I do it with our kids and our, I've um, supported our kids to coach each other. It's hilarious. It's yes. so funny. Oh, can I tell you, Lisa, well, I've got a quick story that you will love. So my son is now 26, but when he was... Um, he would have been 10 and uh, we moved to Sydney and his previous school, he, I think he'd come second in the cross country. Then one year he actually won, but the teacher didn't realize and sent him around for another lap. (laughs) He he was actually first and they couldn't give the, uh, the, take the the award off the child. So he came fourth. So he managed to still get around and come forth. And then we moved to Sydney and he came home and he goes, Oh, Mum, I don't know about this year's cross country. I don't know if I can win. And I said, now, come on, Sid, you're having some ants, right? I said, um, let's do a little bit of CBT, right? Let's do it. And, of course, you know, my kids have had, as yours probably have, have had everything, right? <laughs> and um, so, anyway, the, 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 the story is he won. He won the cross country oh, this year, oh. right? And I said to him, so, Sid, I said, it was the CBT, wasn't it? And he goes, no, Mum. He said it was the bowl of carbs I had for breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> So oh, quiet me down, Mum. That's funny. Didn't see at all. So, um, I don't know how. I, I think got it on. might have been as that well. Is, that is so beautiful. <laughs> don't know how I got onto that story, but anyway, it that's was needed very, to be had. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah very relevant story. Uh, I would. I don't really don't want to leave, but I am going to ask you one more question because I know that you're very, very busy, um, Susie, and we are so grateful for your time. We've been asking all of our um, guests that are on to talk about maybe a self-care strategy that you use that you'd love to share with others because we know that self-care, especially now, is really important. But a lot of people feel that it's just something very narrow. But there are so many different ways that we can have self-care for ourselves and also to pass on to others. Have you got a favourite? 
There are so many, aren't there? And I guess I learned again in my, probably in my twenties that particularly when I had a baby, so I had a baby at 26 and, um, I, I, this is sort of a prelude to my, to my self-care strategy here, if you like, <laughs> or self-nurturant strategy. Um, I, I really realized I needed to implement a lot of strategies then because I, I didn't feel like I could be the best mother that I could be at the time. And of course, you know, it's good enough, uh, mothering or parenting, if you like, but, uh, but I had a lot of ants about being a, a, a mum at the time as well. And so that's when my napping career commenced. So uh-huh. I am anyone that knows <laughs> me well will know that if I get the opportunity for a 15 and I've, I've trained myself now, so I, I don't need an alarm or anything. And, and unless I'm really, really exhausted there's been a few times I have gone longer than 15 minutes. So my partner will say there's there's more than a few, Susie, but uh, (laughs) but yeah, generally napping is one of my most powerful um, self-care strategies that I have. And sometimes my day will revolve around a nap. Like I'll plan my day and I I make sure that I, particularly if it's a really busy day, Mm -hmm. that I've got 15 minute nap. So because then it just gives me the energy for the rest of the day. And I'm an early bird, so I'm normally up at 5 or 5.30 most weekday mornings. And there is research, as you would know, the research says that no longer, you don't want to go longer than generally 15 or 20 minutes because you go into a deeper sleep cycle and then you don't wake up as refreshed. And a neuroscientist colleague of mine has been talking for a while now about this idea of a caffeine nap, um, of having a coffee just prior to your nap and so the caffeine kicks in and wakes you up but I I don't drink caffeine anymore that's Mm. another self-care strategy I've adopted I have one coffee a week on a Saturday now but man that's significantly reduced my anxiety as well by (laughs) reducing uh reducing caffeine so naps absolutely Uh, use that as a strategy but like a performance strategy don't they in um I I think I think it's Google, LinkedIn, you know, yes. uh, th- those organisations. I think they've actually set up areas. Pods, uh, pods yeah. that's right. Nothing pods, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The closest I can get to it is when I just have a, um, I call it my mindfulness moment, so that I have five minutes where yeah. I just breathe. I don't go to sleep, but it's that's the closest I can get to my little yeah. nap. Well, I believe that some research, can't quote it precisely, that, you know, a, a, a good meditation like that, Mm-hmm. Or even a brief meditation can be more energizing than a, than a sleep or a nap. Yeah. So, um, and I, I do. Also, yeah, I also have regular um, mindfulness meditation every day as well. So, yeah. yeah, Susie, we're so so grateful for the time that you've spent with us this morning. Thank you so much. Um, if people want to reach out to you or find you, where's the best place for them to go? Yeah, look, the website, uh, we've just been in the process of updating that. So uh, the website, the Positivity Institute, but I'm also pretty prevalent on social media. I love Insta. That's my favourite platform. You'll see much more of my personal stuff on uh, on Insta. And then, um, yeah, LinkedIn is uh, is more my professional. But, uh, yeah, feel, please feel free to connect or, or re- and if I can help or connect you to anyone that can help don't hesitate to reach out thank you and we'll be sure to share all of those details in the in the show notes so thank you so much yeah and Susie thank you for all the wonderful work that you do like it really has um trickled into so many different areas so the impact that you're having on you know all our the humans who are listening to you and reading about you and whatnot you are just doing phenomenal work so thank you from the bottom of our hearts that's for sure oh what was beautiful and yes i look forward to chatting again soon 
amazing. Fantastic. Thank you. you. (laughs) What a fantastic conversation. Yeah. She's an incredible woman. And I think what I love about her the most is how authentic she is. She is real. She is, even though she ha- wears so many amazing hats, and you know, you know, we have a giggle that we have imposter um, syndrome about her. Mm. She is just so genuine, and I feel so comfortable with her. And the way she approaches all the strategies, whether it's clinical science or coaching, she's able to make sense for people, no matter who you are, and that is such a gift. Oh, um, absolutely incredible gift. And and you know just. Everything that we touched on, uh, uh, you know, I, you know, when I think about, you know, how imposter syndrome shows up, you know, for, for people and my, my own journey, um, you know, just thinking about uh, mental toughness and how that um, that approach, those those four C's can, can you know, help us to, to navigate that, um, you know, the challenges that we might experience uh, or, you know, um, overcome the things that might hold us back. Uh, very powerful stuff. And it reminded me a little bit when she was talking about um, the mental toughness and the strategies about that stop technique in mindfulness where, and, I'm sure, and I know in um, her book, The Positivity Prescription, she actually talks about this strategy where you are stopping and observing those things before you're going ahead and knowing, well, what is, where do you want to go to next? And I think they're the messages that I got out of that as well is that when those and so those automatic um, negative thoughts pop up, you know, we can listen to them if we want to, but we also listen to them with a bit more intent. And then what do we do with them? Yeah. We then can change them. And that's where the pets come in. So the performance enhancing thoughts, change them to that. And then her lovely little strategies in that um, um the mental toughness, the four C's, is mm. that we can actually have a go and, and start thinking about, you know, where can I get the confidence? What what can I control? Where is the commitment? And is there a challenge for me to extend and challenge moving forward and really keep improving? And I, what stood out for me was that love of learning for her is that she was always trying to, like right throughout her life, that doesn't matter when we have these ants, if we have a love of learning and we really try and what can we learn from this situation? Mm. No, we have an opportunity to either follow that or is it actually something that's going to help us or hinder us? And if it's something we need to move on, then move on. Yeah, I agree. And it's like holding its hand, don't, you know, like mm-hmm. <laughs> when that automatic negative thought arrives, that little ant arrives, well, I can choose to hold its hand and go down that burrow with it mm-hmm. <laughs> or I can choose not to and just observe what's going on, um, you know, understanding like when we when we see it from that perspective of you know how the thought is playing out in the moment it's powerful it reduces the power of that ant because we're um we're aware. down yeah, yeah we're quietening it down we're we're awake to it and and uh, very powerful and it just reminds me of you know that fm radio with the inner critic fm where we want to yeah. dial it down and they talk about that when we give too much energy to that inner critic or we get angry with it that it actually makes it louder and so the importance of just observing it understanding where it's coming from and then starting to get that evidence that she talks about which is that cognitive behavior therapy Mm. is the evidence actually telling us that it is true or not 
And even the process of writing it down, being a stronger um, strategy to go, oh, my goodness, that's so not true, where if it's in our head all the time, then it can sometimes stay there. There's so much evidence behind journaling mm-hmm. as, as being, a, um, you know, something that, that can, can help us uh, with our, you know, building resilience, et cetera. But, but um, I really identified with, you know, how, how those um, ants or those automatic negative thoughts can really play a part in, in, in that, um, in in the background of our mind, just chattering away, chatter, 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 and we can listen to it. But I, but I think if we sort of sit and actually write it down, that's where we start to see, like, oh my goodness, like, like how ridiculous. What <laughs> but but we don't. Um, I guess with it just playing in the background, it's just simmering away, and 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 we're not fully awake to it but when we write it down we're waking up yeah and a a little bit like what you mentioned um, which we know from um, Elizabeth Gilbert's book as well Mm. is that let them come along with a ride we need them there for safety Mm. that that is a real the inner critic is there for a purpose yes but but what purpose we want them for is another story so do we do they derail us like are they helping us or hindering us and that's that real process so yeah you can come along on the journey with us in the bus or in the car wherever it is but we are in control of what we want for ourselves so we can choose to follow something that's probably not true or we can challenge that and go no i'm all good thanks very much pop your seatbelt back on quiet in the back seat again And just remind ourselves that we have got some control over that and do we control our emotional stuff and we have a choice. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, You know, our thoughts are not facts and here Mm -hmm. we have um, a lot of resources that we can draw on to prove that. Yeah. And I have to say, I suppose that for the final sort of thing for me is the coaching. The coaching is such a wonderful piece. And if you've never had any coaching before, it's such a great tool to have. And it just guides you through in such an amplifying way, I think. It gives you a lot of confidence and also a bit more awareness of maybe your pathways forward um, and having that plan to be able to do it. Absolutely. And that's, you know, with that coaching, that gives us the ability to draw on our inner coach as well. Definitely. And I think it then becomes part of your natural process when you have those automatic negative thoughts. You can go through that inner coaching process for yourself and get yourself out of it rather than sitting in that struggle for too long, which, you know, struggle is great, but we don't want to sit in that discomfort for too long. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Leanne, another great um, guest. um, And Susie Green just had so many awesome um, resources for us too. So we'll make sure they're in the show notes. Yeah. Well, bye for now, everyone. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to the Imperfect Us podcast. As always, we are extremely grateful for our executive producer, Brenton Ainsworth, for helping us to put this episode together and the incredible music throughout the show. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with someone you care about. And we would be grateful if you could rate this podcast on iTunes. If you know someone who has a great story to share about how to live with imposter thoughts, then please get in touch with us. To find out more about Leanne and Lisa, we welcome you to connect with us on LinkedIn and our socials. Bye for now. Bye for now.